welcome to Osteobites. My name is Christina Iptoma, and I am mom to Osteoangel Dylan and the Director of Scientific Programs for MIB Agents. Today on Osteobites, we are talking with Elena Gerasimov of Kids v. Cancer. Elena will be discussing compassionate use of investigational drugs, and she'll give us an overview of the compassionate use program, explain how to apply for experimental drugs, and discuss the resources available to both patients and doctors throughout the application process. And today we have junior advisory board members, Mia Sandino and Camille Wall as our panelists. So I am very excited to have Elena with us today on Osteobites. Elena is program director at Kids Be Cancer, a nonprofit pediatric cancer advocacy organization. She directs the compassionate use Navigator program, providing guidance and personal assistance to physicians and families in applying for experimental drugs. Previously, Elena worked as a science and business journalist and as a program manager. She holds a master of public health degree in maternal and child health and an MA degree in journalism. And I know from personal experience, accessing investigational drugs can be really confusing and it can be a really daunting process. And Elena and Kids v. Cancer have so much expertise in this area, and they offer tremendous resources for both patients and physicians trying to navigate this process. So we are very excited to have her here today to explain how this all works, especially for a rare disease like osteosarcoma, where there are very few approved drug options. Um, before we get started, I have a few events that I wanted to share with you all. For those of you in the Boston area, we have a Boston Mingle coming up next Friday, March 31st. We promise it's going to be fun and there's going to be free drinks and appetizers and everyone in the osteosarcoma, osteosarcoma community is invited. We'll put the invitation and registration link in the chat and please share with everyone you know in the Boston area. And while we're there, we're also hosting a Healing Hearts Retreat for bereaved osteosarcoma patients on April 1st. Um, please email Casey, we'll put her email in the chat too, and she will reach out to you with more information. Um, and we'd like to thank the sponsor of this episode, BTG Specialty Pharmaceuticals. BTG provides rescue medicines, typically used in emergency rooms and intensive care units to treat patients for whom there are limited treatment options. They're dedicated to delivering quality medicines that make a real difference to patients and their families through the development, manufacture, and commercialization of pharmaceutical products. Their current portfolio of the antidotes counteracts certain snake venoms and the toxicity associated with some heart and cancer medications. The drug Viraxase is for high-dose methotrexate toxicity. All right, um, Mia, would you start the introductions, please? I would love to. Hi, my name is Mia Sandino. I am an osteo warrior. I'm also the vice president of the junior advisory board for MIB. I'm very honored to be here and welcome everybody. And I'm excited for this great presentation. Hi everyone, my name is Camille Wall. I'm 19 years old. I'm currently living in Boston, Massachusetts and I'm a freshman at Boston University studying education and human development. I am a seven-time osteo warrior and a member of MIB's Junior Advisory Board. Happy to be here. And I'll turn it over to Elena. Hello, uh, I'm Elena Gerasimov. I'm uh, very glad to meet you all. And I think that uh, it will be an interesting topic for uh, both audiences, for the patients, for their families, and for healthcare providers if they're joining us as well. 
The um, topic of uh, my presentation today is a compassionate use of uh, investigational drugs for kids with um, cancer. So the Kids with Cancer is a non-profit uh, pediatric advocacy organization. It was founded in uh, 2009 by Nancy Goodman um, after her son Jacob passed away from brain cancer. Jacob was uh, 10 years old. Since then, Kids with Cancer has championed two federal laws, the Creating Hope Act and the Race for Children Act. And we are currently advocating for passage of a third bill, the Give Kids a Chance Act. This new bill will give FDA authority to request studies of combination of drugs for children with cancer. When Jacob was sick, Nancy applied to eight companies seeking compassionate use for him. None got back to her. So in 2016, we created a compassionate use navigator to help physicians and families understand the process and apply for drugs. We have uh, today in the audience both patient families and healthcare providers. So I'd like to state that while only healthcare providers can submit applications, it is very important for patient families to understand the process so uh, that they can initiate conversation about compassionate use with their doctors. Um, the compassionate use navigator was uh, inspired by the story of Josh Hardy. I um, would like to offer you to, to read it. It's available on our website and I provide here a link for that. So um, when we created the Compassionate Use Navigator, we were aiming um, at overcoming informational barriers. We found that some patients um, do not know about this option, that there were misconceptions about FDA um, not allowing the request to proceed, and that there was an inequality in ability to access the drugs, meaning that only uh, people with connections or those who were computer savvy were able to research the drug programs and to apply for them. So I list here a few barriers and a few quotes for you um, uh, about um, you know, the goals which were set to overcome. So I think I'll start with the definition of compassionate use. Uh, compassionate use refers to treatment with unapproved therapies, meaning drugs not approved by the FDA. For a patient who is uh, refractory or relapsed and not responding to standard therapy. FDA has established several criteria to define and grant access to experimental drugs. According to this criteria, compassionate use is intended for a patient who has an immediately life-threatening condition or serious disease and cannot wait for a therapist's approval. There should be no comparable or satisfactory alternative therapies available, and if a therapy exists, it must be no longer effective. The primary goal of compassionate use is treatment, um, not research unlike it could be in a clinical trial. So um, the best way to access experimental drugs, those which are not on the market yet, is through enrollment in a clinical trial. 
but patients are often ineligible or cannot relocate in order to participate in a trial. And sometimes trial is uh, not recruiting or has ended or eligibility criteria may exclude children and adolescents due to their age. In this situation, a patient may consider applying for compassionate use. Compassionate use can also be sought for pediatric cancer patients when off-label use of an FDA-approved drugs is not covered by insurance. We're seeing more and more situations like that now. Here on the slide, you can see a few examples that we worked with um, based on an insurance denial to cover those drugs. Um, an important consideration is the regulatory requirements that the benefit of an experimental drug must outweigh the risks. And the assessment of that is done by treating physician and will be reviewed by FDA later. So I wanna say a few words um, um, to set the correct terminology. Patient advocates, physicians, academics, and journalists usually use the words experimental or investigative drugs or obviously compassionate use. FDA and many pharma companies refer to compassionate use as expanded access. Another widely used term, pre-approval access, precisely describes that the drug has not been approved yet. In Europe, common terms can include named patient program and early access. If you read literature, you might run into those terms. And um, single patient IND or investigational new drug is the application that the company files with FDA for compassionate use for a single patient. And this term is also used to describe compassionate use, something like to open single patient IND. Separately, there are also expanded access programs for multiple patients offered by drug makers. Also, the term has the word expanded access, just like FDA when it refers to compassionate use. These programs are different from compassionate use because they are intended for multiple patients, usually have specific eligibility criteria and are often listed on clinicaltrials.gov. These programs can be offered as a transition for patients after a trial has ended and before a drug is approved. Enrollment in those programs might not be possible for a child whose medical history does not meet eligibility criteria or due to the patient's age. So somewhat like a clinical trial, it is expanded access, but it, has, it can have its own criteria in order to join that program which basically brings a patient who doesn't qualify for it back to a square one. So uh, in those cases, physician will still seek a single patient compassionate use, even in situations when the drug company has an open expanded access program. Uh, how do patients find compassionate use drugs? Before an application for a compassionate use drug can be submitted uh, to um, FDA or to, to a drug manufacturer, a physician needs to identify the drug that has a potential to help patient. I call it step zero. Um, here, there, there are several ways how patients and doctors can learn about experimental drugs. So for patients, it's very often through the word of mouth, through patient organizations, 
through research on the internet, or they would hear from their physician who would initiate conversation about compassionate use. For the providers, for healthcare providers to find compassionate use drugs, they need to be familiar with the ongoing clinical trials. They can hear from colleagues. Um, they can uh, see what's in the drugs company's pipelines on the manufacturer's website, or they peruse other websites such as uh, PubMed. Um, after they have uh, identified um, the potential compassionate use drug, the uh, there are three steps in the process to apply for, uh, for the access to that drug. The first one is to apply to drug manufacturer. Um, then um, the, as a, the application would need to be submitted to the Food and Drug Administration. And um, uh, the physician will need to receive uh, approval from, uh, from its IRB. So um, to apply to a drug manufacturer, the, uh, you will need to find contact information for the company, first of all. You can try locating the expanded access link on the company's website if uh, you don't have company's contact. Most larger companies have posted information with an email address and a phone number, or they might, they might have an online form, which you will need to fill out if you want to apply for the drug. Um, if you are contacting the company by email, you should include in your correspondence an indication and a brief clinical history of the patient. The history should include data such as the patient age, gender, weight, allergies, diagnosis, prior therapy, uh, response to the prior therapy, and the reason for your request, including an explanation of why the patient lacks other therapeutic options. There might be um, several back and forth communications or a company might want to speak with you on the phone. If the company agrees to provide the drug, it will issue you a letter of authorization. Um, you will need to submit the IND number given in that letter of authorization together with the letter of authorization to the FDA. I will explain in a little more detail later in the presentation. Um, there is a link here to the uh, sample uh, letter of authorization. Uh, the initial, yes. Sorry, Elena, is this step the applying to the drug manufacturers? Is that something that the, the physician has to do or that the patient can do? Uh, the whole process of applying to compassionate use can be done only by a physician. Okay. So um, the patient's uh, of course, are welcome to write to the drug manufacturer. And sometimes those letters are helpful as a support, especially if a company issues a denial. But the official request for access to a drug must be submitted by a physician. It's in a, a, a free format. It's just uh, in, in physician's own words. I have such and such patients, the patient relapsed. Here is the, you know, the agent, this and this. This is why I believe that the drug you have would be helpful. You know, so just a letter. And sometimes there are specific questions, especially if it's an email form on the drug manufacturer's website, they will ask for what they want. If there is nothing but just the email address, for instance, then it's basically a letter. Okay, and I think on your website, you have some examples, right? Some templates? 
We do. Okay. We did provide the sample letters, yes. Great. So uh, the initial time commitment for a physician would be about one hour. Uh, it's my estimate uh, to find the contact information and to write an email with a brief clinical history. Um, the uh, companies also usually post the response time, the anticipated response times that they'll get back to a physician within five days or a week, usually it's something like that. But um, that's just to get back to initial request and the issuance of a letter of authorization may take longer. So here I have a, a drug manufacturer's examples of policies slide. Um, since um, the passage of the 21st Century Cures Act, um, the drug manufacturers are required by law to have a policy on compassionate use uh, publicly accessible. Um, so the most difficult step in the whole process is uh, obtaining agreement from a drug company to provide a drug. Companies are under no obligation to provide drugs for compassionate use. And FDA cannot compel a company to do it. Um, so the information the company would post would include um, how long it will take them to respond to request, contacts, and uh, also criteria for providing the drugs. But not all companies uh, have complied with this requirement. So, you know, if the larger one, larger companies might be expected to have this information, some small companies still don't have it. And some have simply posted statements indicating that they do not provide compassionate use access. I have two examples here. One company's policy states that due to supply constraints, it cannot grant access. And another company says that the drug will not be available for compassionate use until a phase two study is complete. But as a patient advocate, I believe that even when such policies are posted on the website, it is worth contacting the company with a request. We don't know when the phase is completed. You know, I think we should always give it a try. Step two is to apply to FDA. It is a good idea to notify the FDA of your request either before you submit the request or right after. Um, I mean, submit the request to, uh, to a drug manufacturer because FDA at this point won't know yet that you're seeking compassionate use. Applying to uh, the Food and Drug Administration involves filling out Form 3926, which is only three pages and takes about five minutes to complete if you have clinical history in front of you. There are instructions on how to fill out the form on FDA's website. In addition to clinical history, you will need to provide a treatment plan. This will include the planned dose, route and schedule of administration, planned duration of treatment, monitoring procedures, and planned modification to the treatment plan in the event of toxicity. So the whole process needs to be sought through. It is often useful to reference published studies, if there are any, that have used the drug in a similar manner. Uh, reaching out to peers who have requested compassionate use for a specific drug is also helpful. And uh, you will need to include the letter of authorization, which grants FDA's a right to reference the drug's company's IND so it can review a description 
of the manufacturing facility and other regulatory data. The um, response time of FDA in emergencies is uh, about, it could be immediate. And uh, for oncology patients, it's about two to three days for non-emergency requests. I would like to uh, stress that FDA has a totally fantastic resource called uh, Project Facilitate. This is a um, pilot program. It, I believe it was created couple of years ago by the Oncology Center of Excellence. And it provides uh, comprehensive support to oncology healthcare professionals in completing, completing expanded access requests. It is essentially a call center, which connects you to an FDA officer. FDA will consider scientific likelihood of uh, drugs benefit in each case and can provide companies contact information it will um, answer your questions and help with the paperwork. And even if you have no questions, it is a good idea to notify project facilitator of your upcoming or submitted request. Um, FDA also has a, um, a, an email and a phone number for patients to call and talk about compassionate use. And I encourage families to do that. Uh, it's a it's absolutely great resource. You know, I really hope that um, with the facilitation from FDA, the likelihood of um, uh, obtaining the uh, compassionate use drugs or following the pr uh, process uh, in an efficient manner um, really increases. Uh, it's a great resource for us. I'm just going to just insert yeah. some props for the FDA here because just from personal experience, they are amazing to work with. You think it's going to be this large government bureaucratic entity and it's not at all like you talk to actual people and they're, you know, they know your name and they're, they're like, well, look for your application. We're going to keep an eye out for it. And they're super responsive. So I just want to give some, you know, feedback that just from my personal experience, they've been amazing to work with. <laughs> Absolutely, I agree. You know, I think they're very responsive and they want to make it happen. And actually, I had cases when FDA would, um, FDA officer would review the application and say, you know what, uh, we can suggest a different drug, which might be also on a compassionate use basis, but uh, they have a wealth of information on their position. They know what's going on, what drugs are in development, and it's a great resource. Um, this slide, I have a FDA mailing addresses. Uh, where the documents need to be sent. And I tried to make a screenshot of the form 3926 uh, here in the bottom. Um, there are different addresses for biologics and for the drugs. Uh, all of that information could be found on FDA website, but I just wanted to call attention to it. So the last step, the third step is the IRB review and informed consent. Uh, after the drug manufacturer agrees to provide the drug, the application to FDA and the RB approval, uh, they can be initiated uh, simultaneously. In non-emergency cases, the FDA will need to see the RB approval before the start of the treatment. Uh, you will uh, first need to obtain informed consent from the patient and then a sign-off from the RB chair or other member of an RB. A link to a sample informed consent is provided here. Um, and I also want to say that the full IRB committee meeting is no longer necessary. It's not necessary to wait, you know, 
a month for the whole committee to meet. You will just need to contact the IRB chair or another member if the chair is not available and request sign off on your request. And please ask for help from your clinical research staff in arranging the sign off. After all of these steps are completed, the investigational drug will be shipped directly to the physician who is responsible for overseeing the investigational treatment and uh, reporting the outcomes to the sponsor being the FDA. In a rare instance, since most children are being treated in academic centers, which obviously have IRBs, in a rare instance, if the request comes from a practice where there is no IRB, we provide some resources how to find an independent IRB. Um, you know, and we estimate the time frame um, for about an hour to obtain the informed consent and about an hour to locate the, uh, the chair of an IRB and uh, get, a, get a signature. You notice that I mentioned several times emergency and non-emergency situations. So um, em emergency is defined by FDA when uh, it's an urgent need for treatment and there is no time to waste. The uh, original case of uh, Josh Hart is that I uh, referenced earlier was an emergency case. Uh, Josh was a cancer patient. He had a, a kidney cancer since he was very little and he beat it uh, three times. And then uh, he needed to have a, a bone marrow transplant. And after the bone marrow, he got an infection with adenovirus. And his um, compassionate use request was actually for medication to beat the adenovirus. He was dying from that. So that was an emergency case, literally. Um, uh, so um, in emergency, you need to call FDA. Um, FDA usually grants emergency use requests the same day over the phone with no paperwork. So certain paperwork can be submitted later, you can proceed quickly. Um, so and uh, you will um, send the paperwork which is required uh, after the treatment has started within 15 days of treatment initiation. And the same applies when there is not sufficient time to secure IRB review prior to treatment. You may proceed just after obtaining informed consent that is required. And then the IRB must be notified within five working days of emergency use. Uh, there is a separate uh, phone line to contact FDA when you are uh, requesting emergency use and they also work after hours. So that's a good resource um, to, to know about. Family expectations for compassionate use. So uh, patients cannot submit uh, compassionate use requests themselves. This leads to an expectations um, to, to an expectation that the physician will be on board and will pursue the request. Uh, one study uh, of pediatric oncologists found that in 73% uh, of cases, conversations about compassionate use were initiated by a healthcare provider. So that the doctor alerted the family that there is um, such an option. But uh, many families are very knowledgeable uh, about drug development and about what's on the market. And most are willing to do 
everything in their power to obtain a, a therapy they believe might save or prolong a child's life. Unfortunately, often companies deny compassionate use requests. There have been numerous cases, uh, instances of families fighting the denial of a compassionate use drug. That was the case of Josh Hardy uh, when um, uh, social media and television and journalists were, and Congress people were involved in trying to get the drug for Josh. And um, that I believe that Josh's, Josh's case uh, gave, um, um, it, it was a start of the compassionate use movement in the patient advocacy community. Families uh, now send pleas to drug companies. They create energetic social media campaigns. They seek help from politicians, from celebrities. They offer to pay for an investigational drug. That was also an offer that the company received um, when the drug for Josh was requested. Um, the advocate said like, well, is it all about the costs? You know, we will cover the costs. Or, you know, I'm, um, I, I know about the cases when uh, families try to buy a drug from a, an overseas pharmacy if it's available there. And um, this is why, you know, because families are willing to fight like that. This is why it is encouraging for the family when a provider becomes a family's advocate. Um, as an example, um, I'd like to read you an excerpt from an actual email exchange, a letter an oncologist sent in response to a drug company denying his request. So <clears throat> here it is. I know the reality. The family most definitely knows the reality of this disease. And I know that this may not work or do anything for the patient. But all we ask is for a chance. In conclusion, I hope you all can understand where the family is coming from. I will continue to support them, especially the patient, during this process and will advise them the best I know how, but I cannot and will not tell them to stop continuing to fight. Physician considerations for compassionate use. Families look to the pediatric oncologist for direction and emotional and medical support. At the same time, physicians must balance uncertainty about the potential benefits and toxicities of a drug against uh, risks of the disease itself. Some physicians may be reluctant to engage in discussions about compassionate use. The reasons for this may be inability to identify a promising investigational drug, concerns about uh, unproven effectiveness or potential toxicities of the drug, lack of clinical evidence to justify investigational treatment for a specific indication, or safety concerns related to the condition of a patient. Um, because the compassionate use application requires knowledge of uh, the regulations and the administrative process, there have been instances when an oncologist who has never submitted a request is um, intimidated by the unfamiliar process and the presumed time commitment. So uh, we encourage the doctors to um, 
educate themselves or seek assistance from organizations that provide it from the FDA and um, uh, research the investigational drugs and uh, advocate for their patients. In terms of for the assistance for physicians and families, um, this slide about our Compassionate Use Navigator, Kids with Cancer created the Navigator program before Project Facilitate was initiated by FDA. We work directly with families and have experience with denials. We can explain the process, locate drug manufacturers' contact information, provide templates and help draft initial requests to drug manufacturers. We can help with Form 3926, although we obviously do not have access to clinical information of the patient. And we can answer questions. My contact information is on this slide. Um, another resource is um, another organization that provide, uh, provides assistance is the Reagan Udall Foundation for the FDA. They provide guidance on expanded access to physician and patients. On uh, their website, there is an explanation of the application process, including a link to clinical trials. Uh, that would include those expanded access programs for multiple patients that I mentioned in the beginning when I explained the terminology. Um, the companies included in the directories that Reagan Udall provides um, they submit information themselves, so the directory may not be comprehensive, but it's a very good resource to start. And there is also a link to an electronic submission for non-emergency request to FDA. But that can be as well sent just by email to the FDA. And I provide the contact information for Reagan Udall here. My last slide is um, about the right to try. Uh, so um, I want to say a few words about this. Um, it's a um, federal law. So for decades, the mechanism of expanded access to investigational therapies has been criticized for uh, blocking access to investigational therapies because it was very difficult to get compassionate use. Um, a lot of um, advocates were not satisfied with uh, how it was uh, working. So as a result of this criticism, right to try laws were passed in many states. And in 2018, a federal right, right, right to try law was enacted. Similar to compassionate use, right to try is intended to provide patients with terminal illnesses access to unapproved drugs. So what are the differences? Unlike under the single patient ID, under the compassionate use program through FDA, under the right to try, eligible drugs must have completed phase one trial rather than phase two. So it's earlier in the clinical studies pro process. Right to try also cut out FDA's oversight from the whole process. FDA uh, does not review or approve requests for try to try act use because a lot of criticism was coming uh, mistakenly, uh, blaming FDA for not granting the requests. So it was not the case um, the, because the first step to receive authorization to use compassionate use drug was always a drug manufacturer. So, and also individual um, 
Right to Try Act requests do not require IRB reviewer approval. So both of those steps are cut out. And patients can submit the requests themselves rather than going through a physician. So why not to consider the strategy? Because it's in the, it sounds generally quite good, right? So first of all, right to try has not overcome the major obstacle to obtaining access, which is the drug sponsored denials of compassionate use requests. You still have to ask the manufacturer to provide the drug. Um, because it does not require drugs, it does not require drug sponsor to provide an investigational product. Some people say that the right to try actually provides only the right to ask. In this regard, it's not different from the existing uh, compassionate use pathway. Some pharmaceutical companies oppose right to try, even though it shields them from liability, because companies prefer to proceed with the expanded access mechanism that provides FDA safeguards. They want to know that FDA has reviewed requests, that the FDA agreed on it, authorized it, and um, uh, there is no reliable data, but um, a year after um, Right to Try was enacted, you know, I last looked at it, in it, I believe, in 2019, only a handful of patients reportedly received drugs through Right to Try. They can submit the requests, but um, in my experience, it's highly likely that the company will uh, tell them to go through the compassionate use uh, mechanism. So this is how it works. And I thought I will mention that as an option, but I personally have um, no knowledge of um, successful requests or of patients using this uh, pathway. So this was my brief overview about compassionate use. And I'd like to thank you and I will be glad to answer your questions. Yeah, thank you so much. That was great. Um, I, have a, I have a question coming up. So th this happened to me as well, because I had to, you know, use some investigational drugs, but I did not go through the compassionate use program. Mm -hmm. uh, often drug manufacturers offer a financial assistance program for drugs, which is what I did, that aren't covered by insurance. How is applying for compassionate use different from applying for a discounted price or no cost drugs from the drug manufacturers foundation or financial assistance program? So how would you compare the two? It's a very good question. There are several differences. First of all, compassionate use drugs are free. Uh, and um, they would most likely be um, issued for the condition as a single course of therapy. It wouldn't be an ongoing, it wouldn't be for something chronic. And that would be for the patient who cannot access it some other way. So the financial assistance program for patients come because usually come because uh, the patients go to those programs because they um, the insurance doesn't cover. That makes me think that most likely the drug has been approved because if the insurance has the right to consider coverage and or you know support or deny the coverage, that would be for the approved drug. Compassionate use is for the unapproved drugs, those that have not come to the market yet, those which are in a clinical trial. When you're in a clinical trial, the issue of insurance, 
uh, is not rising, you know. So um, uh, this is, I guess, for the different stages of the drug development, that would be the answer, approved versus unapproved drug. And then uh, for the length of the therapy, uh, to some extent, not necessarily, but uh, maybe, but uh, usually the uh, compassionate use drugs will not be even considered by the insurance because insurances exclude all experimental drugs. The drug needs to be approved. Going through the financial assistance program at the company is a very good pathway for those uh, who are fighting the insurance company. And uh, in my experience, companies are quite generous and uh, really trying to help this um, for, provide help to patients who cannot afford their drugs otherwise. Um, Elena, can I just clarify? So when you say an approved drug, because um, there's just overall FDA approved, but especially for a disease like osteo, um, a lot of, especially when you're looking at, you know, targeted therapies, a lot of those drugs may be FDA approved, but not for osteo. So they're considered off-label drugs. Right. So do, does the, um, the compassionate use apply to off-label drugs? So it may be an FDA-approved drug, but not approved for use in osteo. Or right, so it's approved for a different indication, right. and therefore insurance would uh, um, decline coverage, correct? Uh, yes, that happens, unfortunately. When the FDA set up compassionate use program, uh, it was not for these purposes. It was not for those circumstances. It was exclusively for people who cannot get it through a clinical trial. That's why, you know, some of the terminology for it, it's still called pre-approval active. Okay. We're talking about before the drug was approved. But I hear about more and more cases when people go through the compassionate use pathway to get the drug because insurance is not covering. And the companies are questioning, you know, themselves, they say like, well, we don't know what to do. The drug is approved, the drug is on the market, the doctor can prescribe it. You know, why are you applying to compassionate use? You know, uh, that's a loophole in a whole situation. It hasn't been resolved yet. And I think this is something we as a patient advocates need to work on, um, uh, you know, about coverage of cancer drugs. Uh, because waiting for the peer review uh, studies be, to be published to prove that this indication, so the drug works, you know, for some uh, expanded indications, you know, takes time. And we, have, we need to um, create a mechanism. And now it's actually happened to be a compassionate use to come and apply for the approved drug just because it's for a different indication. Yes, patients do that. So people do that, but it wasn't kind of the primary in, in, in It was not the primary goal. I think it was not even anticipated that that's what's going to be happening. You know, my guess only could be that we are learning with such a speed, you know, we're discovering, you know, especially with a targeted therapy in precision medicine, we're discovering different genes and mutations in which all uh, oh, the drug could be actually effective against this and this one. You know, and um, I think it's a result of the recent scientific progress. But um, yes, we are basically seeing patients uh, asking for compassionate use for approved drugs now as well. Thank you. All right, I have the next question um, based off personal experience that I had. 
Um, so I was treated with MEPAC, also known as MTP, PE, or mifemuratide, um, in 2017. Um, we, my family and my physician went through about an eight-month process to obtain it, um, and I ultimately did receive the treatment. Um, Mifemuratide is widely used um, in other places outside of the U.S., but for some reason it's not FDA approved here. Um, so I'm wondering, is the process any different or easier if there are a lot of established precedents of patients with a specific disease applying for a drug? If there are a lot of patients with specific disease applying for a drug which is not approved in the United States, or uh, for approved drugs. That would be, I think, the first distinction. Um, you know, there is a provision uh, which I'm not very familiar with, you know, uh, since it's outside of compassionate use about personal uh, drug importation from another countries for personal use. Um, this is something that FDA handles. And, and I guess if the drug is approved in another country and it's needed for a, a patient here, and for some reason it's not approved here yet, I believe there is a pathway to import the drug. Um, for the uh, multiple patients here applying for the unapproved drug, uh, you know, FDA actually likes to collect this information because it would allow FDA to consider suggesting to a company opening of a new clinical trial. For instance, you know, if you take an example with another indication, you know, that there is a drug which is being studied for one indication, but then, you know, we're seeing more and more patients applying for it to compassionate use because uh, they have a different indication, but they have a reason to believe that the drug is working. That might lead FDA to turn to the company and say, look, you know, we're seeing so many of them. Why don't you open a trial? And the trial can be very small. It could be five patients, 10 patients to start with, you know, and um, uh, as far as I know, that has happened. Sometimes it even happened within the same hospital. You know, I would talk to an oncologist who said, oh, you know, I have such and such patient, he's looking for this drug. And while we're working on getting this drug, I get um, a message saying, oh, now I have two patients looking for this drug. So, um, I would hope that that encourages companies to open more trials and to look into studying the drugs in uh, different indications. Had another question come in. Uh, you had mentioned that the biggest hurdle is getting drug manufacturer approval. Based on your experience and working with you know, patients and their families, what are the best strategies to secure compassionate use approval from the drug manufacturer? That's an excellent question. It's actually, you know, I would like to talk about that, you know, and I wish I knew the best strategy, but I can tell you what works if that's possible. Uh, the best one is a proof that this drug is going to help the patient. So if there, there were previous instances of um, this company providing drug to somebody, somebody uh, who needed compassionate use and seeing a good result, basically saving a patient life or prolonging a patient life, they are more likely to provide it again. You know, so a good justification. Uh, you know, I had a case once when the company said, um, no, they, they declined to provide the drug for a patient for whom we were advocating. 
And uh, what helped us, we found a doctor in a different institution across the country who said, you know what, you know, I actually use this drug for my patient, you know, and then we asked him to get on board with a treating physician of uh, our patient and um, talk to a company together. And when they did that, the company changed their course and provided the drug. I mean, it wasn't like that. It wasn't into one conversation. It wasn't very easy. We didn't locate another physician right away. It all took time. But, you know, I saw that it's, uh, it worked. You know, if we would have stopped at the first denial, um, the patient probably wouldn't get the drug. But we kept looking, you know, and we found somebody who's, uh, who's done it. So um, that's very helpful. Um, you know, it has to be some kind of um, uh, clinical justification that the drug you're asking for has a potential to help. Uh, and the company will look at that. Um, and uh, um, in my experience, companies um, developing the drugs for patients because they want to save lives. So um, they, uh, they are not just declining to provide the drug out of, you know, for no reason. There is usually some justification, unless it, you know, as it was in a Josh's case, it was a supply issues. You know, it's much harder for smaller companies because they don't have enough uh, drug manufacturer. And, uh, uh, but you know, the, uh, the uh, I believe the former head of speaker of the biotechnology industry organization a while ago, you know, several years ago when I was at some, conference um, uh, told um, uh, drug companies that if you are developing a cancer drug, you have to prepare yourself for the fact that you will be asked to provide compassionate use. So you, you just start thinking how you're gonna do it, you know, at the same time when you're starting to develop the drug. And I think that most of them do and say, um, create those expanded access programs when they can. So um, I think we're seeing positive dynamics, um, at least you know, from a time when Josh needed a drug, which was in 2014. All right, I have the next question um, from the audience. The care teams are so busy and the application process seems like a lot of work and extra administrative work. How can patients and caregivers help their oncologist slash care team during the application process? And what types of resources does Kids Be Cancer offer oncologists to ease the burden and help them through the process? It's also a very good question. We hear it a lot. I try to stress that um, the time commitment is not so huge, but you know, I don't want to minimize it. From a looking uh, to the, for the company's contact and sending some email and summarizing clinical history. Yes, it takes oncologist time, absolutely. If um, there is staff uh, who, help, who are able to help with that, that's excellent. You know, most uh, large academic medical centers do have the staff and they do have experience, um, but um, certainly there are uh, doctors who have never submitted that request, who don't have, you know, administrative resources to do that. And um, as I said, um, FDA can guide, they can help with this form, um, you know, filling out of the form. Uh, 
we have templates, FDA has templates, you know, how to write the letter uh, to the uh, drug manufacturer. You know, this is just like really an email. You can send even a very short email if you don't have time right away. I wanted to apply such and such drug, you know, I will provide you the clinical information later, you know, just like to initiate the process, um, you know, and uh, I'm more than happy to do that. That's what I've been brought on board to get the cancer to do in 2016. That's when I joined the organization. You know, um, I can help fill out the form, you know, but uh, not fully, but, you know, I will guide, I will explain. And when you actually, you know, I guess when you're listening to presentation, it seems like, yes, look at that, the, the drug manufacturers, the FDA, the IRB, you know, and researching the drug, it all takes time. After you've done it, um, and you know what drug you want, it's not that time consuming. The um, difficulty will come if you are denied the drug because you would um, need to go back and forth. You know, I would encourage every physician to go back and forth with the company, not just take no for an answer on the first try. It doesn't mean that uh, the drug will be provided. It depends on every single case. But uh, yes, it takes advocacy on the part of the physician. And I tried to say that I believe this is what the families now expect, that the doctor would be an advocate for a patient. And in my um, experience, most oncologists are advocates for their patients. And Elena, to, to that point, you had given us a nice anecdote about that, uh, that instance where you were able to pair up the two doctors, one that had experience a good outcome with one of the drugs with the other to help them get approval, um, which was very encouraging. But I was just curious, um, do you have a sense of kind of what the success rate is after getting the first denial? Like, is there a pretty encouraging rate um, once you have that back and forth conversation? I could not put a number on that, but here's what I would say. I believe that situation improved dramatically in the past seven years. That we used to be seeing uh, denials all the time. And as I said, when Nancy first asked for the drug for Jacob, uh, no company even would get back to her because they were not uh, obliged to uh, respond to an email they get. And now they all us up, you know especially those who post those policies, they have people, they will get back to you. That's already was the first big step. And after that, you know, we start about why this drug or why not this drug and um, will it help the patient or not? You know, and I believe if there is a medical justification for that and a chance that the drug is going to help, most likely the patient will be provided the drug. That the big uh, social media campaigns that uh, we had to do for Josh you know, going on CNN and Fox on, and France, that's what, you know, how it actually ended up. Or, um, you know, in uh, enlisting a, a Washington football team player, you know, to tweet all of his supporters of over a million people, you know, saying that we need help for Josh. I think this is no longer needed, you know. So I would say that the success rate is increasing. That's, that's what I would say, you know, I'm much more optimistic now, you know, if you would get a compassionate use request than it was in the beginning when I uh, just started working on that. All right, that's encouraging. Thank you. Mia, do you wanna have throw out one more question and then before we wrap up? Sure. Uh, 
what is the typical turnaround time once you contact the drug company for compassionate use to when the patient has the drug in hand, or I guess in, you know, the nurse's or oncologist's hand uh, to start treatment? Is it easy to get an emergency use exception for the 30 day waiting period? Yes, absolutely. Emergency use does not uh, have a 30 day period. As I said, the FDA would uh, um, approve it over the phone. You know, you call them at nine o'clock at night, you know, and uh, you know, if you have an agreement. What is the time frame? Okay, so um, the company for non-emergency, the company uh, will get back to you within five to seven days. Sometimes it's two to three, depends on the company. After that, uh, depending whether they agreed right away to provide the drug, uh, let's say it will take them another week, you know, going back and forth, you know, they will agree. So that would be two weeks. The FDA, uh, after you submit the paperwork, uh, for oncology patients, two to three days in non-emergency case. You know, they uh, they they state that, that three days uh, approval. IRB, uh, depending on how soon you could locate the chair of the IRB, you know, I would say, you know, it could be next day if uh, if you prepare the paperwork. Again, if you have a clinical staff that who can uh, help fill it out, that just one person doesn't have to do all that. So uh, we can look at a very optimistic scenario of two weeks and non-emergency. I would say more likely it would be a month to two months probably though, because all of the steps would require that, you know, all this paperwork even need to be done. In an emergency, uh, it could be as soon as the next day, you know, plus, you know, we need some time for shipment of the drug because the company ships the drug, you know, so it could be, um, I mean, the next day probably is also very optimistic, but like I say, the day, the day after, you know, for emergency requests, uh, George got his drug uh, in a week, you know, but that was through all this pressure and TV interviews and everything. And that was for emergency in a week. So uh, in that case, it was actually, you know, very long because Josh was dying from that virus. Um, so, you know, I would say, it's realistically to think a month to two months to get the drug, depending on also what the condition of the patient. If it's obvious that the patient can continue on the current therapy, but we want to explore that, you know, based on the results of the current therapies, then, you know, there isn't such a hurry. Um, but, you know, let's say two months is a good estimate. Okay, great. That's also not, not super long. Um, so we, I'm sure we could sit here and ask you questions all day because there's so, um, it's really good information and super helpful. And um, we just want to thank you, Elena, for joining us today and for your commitment to pediatric oncology patients everywhere. Um, there's a wealth of information on the Kids Be Cancer website. So we'll make sure to send out that link so everyone has that. And um, can share, Elena, are we, can we share some of the information on your slides as well? Because there was a lot of great Absolutely. I, I put all these mailing addresses and everything with the ideas that slides could be used uh, afterwards, you know, as a reference. Right. So we'll, we'll share those with um, everyone who registered today. More information on this and all osteobites can be found on YouTube, our website, mibagents.org, or your favorite podcast place. And um, next week, we are talking to Dr. Amanda Marinoff from UCSF about MIC amplification as a prognostic biomarker in osteosarcoma. So thank you again, Elena, for being here today and to Mia and Camille 
as always, you guys are awesome. Thank you. And thanks to our sponsor, BTG Specialty Pharmaceuticals. And thank all of you for joining us today. We hope to see you next week. Thank you.